I just wanted to see if I could get access to a local community center to put on a punk show. And somehow one thing led to another and the community was sponsoring teen dances. And, you know, they'd be teen dances with Iron Cross headlining. And you know, so I was able to like book some shows until some idiot skinheads trashed the bathrooms. <laughs> and, uh, that was the end of that. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hello, rock stars. It's Lid Shaw, your host for Recording Studio Rockstars, the show bringing you inside the recording studio. I created this show to introduce you to real-world recording professionals to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can take your records to the next level and be a rock star of the recording studio yourself. My guest today is Ronan Chris Murphy, a producer, mixer, and recording artist. Ronan has spent the past 25 years playing and recording music. He started out playing in punk bands in Washington, D.C., touring and sharing stages with Dinosaur Jr., The Flaming Lips, The Henry Rollins Band, and Guar. In fact, I'm going to ask Ronan here in a minute if he's still covered with fake blood after that show. <laughs> and uh, Ronan then moved into production and mixing in a multitude of music genres. Jazz, rock, progressive, folk, pop, classical, and world music are all part of Ronan's discography. Recording has taken him to three continents with artists from dozens of different countries where he has helped some of the greatest artists in the world push the envelope and take their music visions to the next level. His productions have received wide critical acclaim, been featured in films and television, won awards, and hit the top 10 around the world. As a producer, engineer, and or mixer, Ronan Chris Murphy has worked with the likes of King Crimson, Steve Morse, Terry Bozio. Steve Stevens, Tony Levin, and Nels Klein, to name a few, as well as various projects featuring members of Tool, Ministry, Weezer, Dishwalla, and Yes. He continues to collaborate with artists as a songwriter and musician and perform his own music with Lives of the Saints and will soon release his first solo album featuring Tony Levin, Terry Bozio, Pat Mastellato, and Mike Keneally. Ronan is a member of the Music Producers Guild of the Americas, the Recording Academy, writes for multiple publications, and is a speaker and panelist at various recording and music events. Ronan also has a cool podcast called Ronan's Recording Show, and I highly recommend you check that out. And one of the coolest things Ronan has for you, rock stars, is a series of international recording workshops called Recording Boot Camp. This is an opportunity for you to get inside the studio for a powerful face-to-face -face classroom session. Ronan takes you through an intense journey of the studio and all its components, from the gear to recording all the way to mixing, and class is in session a few times a year. And I'll include links in the show notes to make it easy for you to find out more about the next one and when it starts. Please welcome my guest on Recording Studio Rockstars, Ronan Chris Murphy. Are you ready to rock, my friend? Yes, sir, I am. That guy you have on your show sounds impressive. I'd like to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks for bearing through my long-winded intro there. I'm typically wearing out my guests with long intros. and Yeah, it's my pleasure, man. It's a big day. I'm a rock star, finally. <laughs> yes, man. <laughs> Struggling for all these decades. Welcome to your award ceremony. 
Woo! <laughs> so Ronan, that was my version of an introduction to you. Can you tell us more in your own words about who you are and where you come from? You know, you got a lot of the bio there, but I was I was a guy who just came up in bands. I kind of came up in punk and the scene that later became known as alternative and you know, switched over into production when my bass player quit. Basically, I had to do something with my musical energy and started on a four-track cassette. And then there was just no turning back. I just became obsessed, read everything Craig Anderton ever wrote and yes. uh, you know, went bonkers on it and, and really never looked back. And you know, I loved, loved being a performing musician. But this recording stuff uh, just gave me all the same sort of joy and pleasure and and I could do it more consistently. So I could do it all the time when I wasn't working, um, you know, before this became my real job. So that was it. It just sort of like informed my life and I obsessed about it. And, you know, I was living in Virginia, grew up in D.C., living in Virginia. You know, it brought me to Boston. It brought me to living in Canada. I was back and forth between Seattle and England for a bunch of years. Uh, and then it brought me here to Los Angeles, where I now live. And then my, my whole thing is, you know, I'm just a guy that's into really cool music, who loves making music, loves being a part of it. And, you know, I've managed to sort of carve out a really wacky life where I've got to, you know, work with musicians that I idolized when I was younger. And, you know, I get to jump on airplanes and make records in, you know, villas in Italy and uh, crazy funky little studios in, in Malaysia and all everything in between. Well, pretty impressive that you went from a punk rock bass player straight to working with Tony Levin <laughs> as your replacement, huh? <laughs> yeah, no. Well, when I, I was actually, when I was really doing the punk thing, I have to put this in quotes, I was the singer. And then I was primarily a guitar player. And uh, yeah, and you know, I've been lucky to do a ton of stuff with Tony Levin over the years. And uh, you know, one of these days, I'll get my own record done. I'm just kind of so swamped with making records for other people that I have little time to get my own record. But Tony is um, is the bass player for my album, which I, you know, I'm not worthy to be on the same record as him. But he was uh, kind enough to indulge me. Is he playing the stick? Uh, yeah, it's mostly bass, but there, there, yeah, there's um, there's stick on a few tunes as well. That's an amazing instrument. Incredible. Yeah. In the right hands, it's an amazing instrument. In the wrong hands, whoo, <laughs> kind of like banjo. In the right hands, it's it's a beautiful thing. In the wrong hands, whoo. Well, you saw the picture of me for my Skype playing a banjo in a junkyard, and and maybe now you can understand why I was playing in a junkyard. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, let's see. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about DC too. There's a great book called This Could Be Your Band. Are you familiar with that one? That sort of sounds like yes. the time you were coming up in DC. Yeah, I was uh, I was there. I left DC in 1985, and you know I was really really lucky to be there at the time because again I was into the kind of American hardcore and punk movement, and really like the real great hotbeds for American hardcore in the early 80s were Washington DC and Los Angeles. I think. Yeah. And DC, we just had so many great bands. We had Bad Brains, we had Minor Threat, Void, Faith, uh, Iron Cross, all this like the quality of this stuff was really incredible. I mean, literally Minor Threat played a prom at one of the local high schools, you know? And so we got to see these bands that eventually became legendary, you know, in tiny, small clubs and rec centers and things like that. And it was, it was such a really cool scene to be a part of, not only because there was great music, but DC really had its own vibe. There's a um, there's a new movie out called Salad Days, a documentary about it, and you can briefly see my little 16 year old mug in the uh, in the intro credits. And that's all I get in the movie, but uh, 
you get to see my face in the intro credits. But the cool thing about DC is DC was a really DIY work ethic kind of punk scene. Mm-hmm. You know, it had a whole lot of stuff, but you know, it really wasn't so much of like, Ooh, let's get drunk party kind of thing. It was like, yeah, let's do this. Discord Records is the obvious great example. And, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, as a punk kid in DC, the idea that there were really barriers that you couldn't get across just didn't really seem to click. It's sort of like, okay, I've got a crappy punk band. No labels want to put my stuff out. So I'm going to start a little record label. So I started this little cassette record label with my band and some other tiny little things. And, you know, my band wasn't cool enough to get on good shows. So it's like, well, why don't I become a show promoter? So I was started promoting shows when I was like 16 uh, and things like that. And, and in a weird way, that sort of DIY punk work ethic is pretty much informed like everything else I've done, you know, for the rest of my life in terms of, you know, business and things like that, in terms of, you know, the idea of like, oh, there's limitations to us making a record. It's like, well, no, there's there's challenges to us making a record, but let's figure out a way to do it. And yeah, you know, and so everything about like just, you know, project by project of getting records done to, you know, really running my whole business and things like that is it's so informed by that kind of idea of like, yeah, just do it, you know? Well, I can't do this. It's like, well, it's tough to do this, but go do it. Well, it's so true. And I love the fact that, you know, the 2010s existed back in the 1980s. And, you know, people don't always realize that they talk about the changing music business, but for the underground scene, for the punk rock scene, for the independent music scene in the 80s, it was DIY. This is the time when I'm going to guess that you probably had a zine that you were printing and sending out too. And maybe you can talk about that. I know you had one. Ah, God, I hate to break your heart. No, I, I never had a zine. So, uh, no, I, I booked shows and had a tiny cassette-only record label and things like that. One of my great triumphs was, I don't even know how I did it. I was 16 years old. You know, I somehow managed to get the local county, Arlington County, to sponsor teen dances. I just wanted to see if I could get access to, you know, rent a hall at a local community center to put on a punk show. And somehow, one thing led to another, and the community was sponsoring teen dances and, you know, they'd be teen dances with iron cross headlining and things like that. And, you know, so I was able to like book some shows until some idiot skinheads trashed the bathrooms. <laughs> uh, that was the end of that. <laughs> well, you know, what camper van Beethoven said about it. Take the skinheads bowling. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, let's explain to our listeners what a zine is, because that's maybe a passe concept. What were some of the best zines back then? And, and what is a zine? Uh, Touch and Go was a, probably one of my favorites, but basically Zine was a DIY magazine. And, you know, the barrier of entry, you know, we didn't have Amazon doing Create Space and all that self-publishing. Things were really tough. So if you wanted to create a magazine, magazine, you just kind of did it. And it's funny because some of the early versions of the zines would be literally somebody with four pages that they copied at Kinko's and stapled together and gave out. And, you know, maybe a local record store said, yeah, we'll buy an ad for $18. And they're like, woohoo, printing costs. And uh, and then some of the, you know, bigger ones, they started to grow and do real pressing, like Flipside and Touch and Go. But really, zines were just the DIY magazines of the early 80s. And they were so great because... One, they tended to have one or one or two people really controlling the personality and the vibe of what it was out 
about. So it had real kind of perspective, but it was also a way to get into magazines like, you know, your yappy little punk rock band that nobody cared about might be able to get a tape to one of the guys that wrote record reviews. Because long before the internet was the big thing it is, there was really no magazine publishing middle class. You know, you were big, glossy, Time Magazine, Rolling Stone spin, or you were a guy at uh, Kinko's photocopying your cut-and-pasted-together zine. Yeah, and then, you know, I know some people would mail them out. In fact, a magazine that we both are familiar with and maybe many of our listeners are and hopefully should be because I hope to have him on the show later, Larry Crane and Tape Op magazine started out as a kinko of copies. Yeah, Larry and John are great. I mean, and in a way, yeah, they really kind of took that zine ethic. And yeah, what they do is so really, really cool. And actually, if you go to roninsrecordingshow.com, which is actually about to get a big facelift and just hunt for tape op. I do like a nice 30 minute in depth, maybe even longer than that, 30 minutes to an hour in depth interview with those guys about it. And it's a really great story. That's a perfect analogy. They really have that spirit of here's a perspective and just doing it. Well, I remember getting a copy of the first one and it was literally done on a Xerox machine, stapled together and mailed to the studio. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Listeners, pay attention here. This zine concept probably sounds a lot familiar like what a blog is today. But one of the things that made it stand out back then was that not everybody was doing a zine. You know, you could stand out by creating one. What in your experience is a modern equivalent of an opportunity to sort of stand out a little bit and shine using some of these tools? It's a lot tougher now because in a weird sort of way, the difficulty kind of weeded out the weak. <laughs> by that, I don't mean somebody who wasn't good enough to do something or rich enough to do something, but somebody who didn't have the passion to do something. So it was a lot of work to put together a zine. So it had to be something you really cared about, you're passionate about, you loved, and it was a lot of work to do it. So nobody got into it lightly. And I, I think there's real value of content that's created with passion versus, oh, yeah, yeah, we can kind of put that up. Uh, it's so easy to do a blog and, you know, it's so easy to, to release a digital album that it's much, much tougher to stand out because there's so much stuff that's sort of released without care or passion. I see artists do this a lot. I'm going off on a tangent, sorry, but I see artists that, you know, they just, oh yeah, we kind of jammed on the weekend and yeah, it was pretty cool. So we did a digital release, <laughs> you know, and they're out promoting their SoundCloud thing. And and there's nothing wrong with that. There's been moments where jamming for a weekend has given us some of the most beautiful music ever uh, released. I don't know. That didn't really work for the Grateful Dead very much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm in the middle of reading a book about John Coltrane's A Love Supreme, which is you know one of the greatest pieces of recorded music in human history. And you know that was recorded in an evening. <laughs> Yeah. And so there there are examples. And, um, you know, I think uh, Van Morrison did Astral Works in a weekend and, you know, Bad Brains knocked out an album in a weekend. So they may have been rehearsing a little bit before yes. the weekend started, right? <laughs> yeah, but I've gone on a tangent from my tangent. But it's that kind of thing where it's like, eh, it's whatever, let's put it out. And one of the huge mistakes that people make is they don't realize that the old adage, you know, you have one chance to make a first impression. And it's the sort of thing where you're going to go out and like hit your social media things like, you know, maybe all your Facebook friends don't know your music uh, or your Twitter friends or, you know, other buddies in Pensado's place student group on Facebook. And you're like, oh, yeah, here's a kind of mix. It's not very good. But yeah, here it is. And there's nothing wrong with not being great yet. But all of a sudden you hear that like, oh, that's what that guy does. And so next time, you know, a guy or gal posts something up there, it's like, 
eh, I'm not going to bother checking it out. So people don't really work to like, yeah, let's create something amazing and put it out into the world. And things get really, really diluted. And unfortunately, a lot of just the fantastic, brilliant stuff is probably getting lost in the din of people going, oh, yeah, we jammed on the weekend. The mix kind of sucks, but here it is. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And it's true. And at the same time, you know, that can also sometimes be discouraging, especially for people in the studio who are working on their mix over and over and over again. So what's the what's the counter to that? What's the antithesis that says, here's how you get from point A to amazing finished product. I mean, one thing is to realize that awesome doesn't need to necessarily be meticulous. And that's a huge mistake. A lot of people have this disposition of getting really obsessive and things like that. But because uh, you can make amazing mixes in an hour sometimes. Yeah. Or you can make amazing mixes that take you two weeks. But I think the thing is, getting to the point where going, yeah, this is great. This is, I really want people to hear this. Or this is the best I can do. And putting that out into the world. So, yeah, I don't want to be discouraging that people shouldn't be doing stuff. But even wherever you're at, like put forth your best. Even if you've been recording for three or four months. And it's unlikely your mixes will have the same stereo width and impact and things like that. Of, you know, a guy like me, he's been able to do it for a few decades. But do something like, this really kicks ass. I love this. I'm really proud of this. And that stuff can go out. Because uh, it's about passion and greatness. What sucks is, you know, just the, eh, it's it's not very good, but here it is. And like, then why did you post it? I don't, I don't get this at all. Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to get a tweetable quote out of you. Ah, this kind of sucks. It's not very good, but here it is. That's great. Ronan, I want to ask you a question here. Uh, tell us a time in your career, your musical path and journey with recording, where it was a really important failure for you, somewhere where things just really crapped out and didn't do so well, but maybe it turned out to be a good learning experience. Um, yeah, here's a good one. I, I won't get into too many details, but I worked at a studio and that relationship ended. I'm sure there's various stories, but essentially it ended because I didn't want to actively support their religious uh, <laughs> agenda. It wasn't because you sent phantom power to the ribbon microphone? <laughs> <laughs> it was not that. Uh, but yeah, we, we ended up having a thing where I didn't want to pay money into their religion and that made me not a good person to be there. Wow. So I essentially was more or less fired from that. And and that was a bummer. You know, it was my first time really having a job where I was paying my rent in the studio and things like that. So I was I was living in Boston at the time. And uh, I had a, you know, Metro Pass. I was just going around town and I saw this guy playing guitar in the subway. I'm like, wow, he's really cool. And I watched him play for a while. And like, I could tell the guitar he was playing, the technique he was using. Like, wow, he's he's studied with Robert Fripp. You know, Robert Fripp has a particular kind of method and tuning and things like that. So, you know, my train came and I let it pass and just hung out and kept watching this guy. And then we started talking. And it was this guy, Steve Ball, who'd become one of my greatest friends and one of the most important people in my whole life. But it turned out that he was a member of Robert Fripp in the League of Crafty Guitarists. And I had yeah. actually seen him play a couple years before. We just hit it off and we're like, you know, let's collaborate on some stuff. So I ended up producing some things and we collaborated on various things. And then we kind of went our separate ways and then teamed up. And he ended up getting me a job briefly. I was an audio lead for Microsoft. For, this is my one year of non-just music for music stuff. Learning the business. Yeah. But eventually it was his connection that got me connected working with Robert Fripp, which, uh, you know, got me connected doing records for King Crimson, which got me working with people like Tony Levin and Pat Mastelato and... So like this whole 
explosion and web of really awesome, fantastic things that have happened in both my musical life and the sort of the career side of my musical life happened because, you know, these guys at that studio weren't too keen on having me around <laughs> because of some religious issues. You know, so I was just walking around. And had I spent the day in the studio, I wouldn't have walked into this guy. We wouldn't have met. And so it was this big sort of like getting dumped thing. Ended up making for one of the most important meetings of my whole life in terms of my development as a record producer and engineer. Wow, what a story. So, And it, along with that is the idea of just sort of slowing down. You had this opportunity to just slow down long enough to miss a train and hang out for an extra minute and watch music in the subway. Yeah, exactly. I'm from Boston, so I, I know that area. And Boston always had a remarkable busking scene there. Yeah, I got to work with one of the greatest artists I ever worked with was Martin Sexton, who's a great Boston folky and singer-songwriter and busker and just staggeringly talented. I knew a guy who played something called the guitar machine in Boston. He played banjo and he built a one-man band machine that he would use foot pedals and it would strum the guitar. And then he thought, that's not enough. I'm going to change the chords on the guitar. So his other foot changed the chords. And then he thought, well, that's not enough. I want to have a bass part. So he added a bass on top of it. Nice. And then he had a hi-hat going and you know, it was used all these bicycle parts. Nice. Eric Royer is his name. He might still be doing it. The Guitar Machine. Cool. Well, so Ronan, tell us about something that's really exciting for you right now, stuff you're working on. Um, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I mean, I'm stupidly busy at the moment because I'm juggling more than I should. But there's a couple of things. One, on like the kind of creative artistic front, I'm doing a record with a woman named Kathleen Blackwell. And uh, this is the third album we've done together. And the first two we did, you know, at my studio and they were kind of cool and great. And this next one is just a really different kind of thing where we're sort of trying to make a record that fuses like world music and found sound with pop music. And so we're doing everything from kind of creating beats and building up songs and then bringing in different sort of world music elements from around the world onto that. And there's other tracks where we're sort of capturing these world music elements from other places and trying to turn those into, into pop songs. It's really, really fun. So we've been recording in Venice, Italy, over in Istanbul, Turkey. I've uh, been down to Oaxaca, Mexico a few times. Uh, just got back from tracking some blues guitar in uh, in Austin, Texas, and I got That's to play cool. one of Stevie Ray Vaughan's old guitars, which was kind of a rush. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that's this fun record. And it's really cool because we're just really harvesting sources. And some of the stuff is done in nice studios. Some of it's recorded just out in the streets or in the canals of Venice. And uh, just for fun, we did some percussion overdubs at the Alamo uh, a couple weeks ago. Is why not? We were in San Antonio. Let's do some percussion at the Alamo, as one would. <laughs> and I mean, how much fun that you get to say Oaxaca, Texas. I mean, Oaxaca, Mexico, excuse exactly. me. Exactly. <laughs> Oaxaca's, if you haven't been there, man, uh, Oaxaca's an awesome, awesome place. It's great food. Things aren't expensive, nice people, and, and just such an amazing town for art. It's a really awesome art town in, in Oaxaca. Well, that's awesome. So, hey, I'm going to throw some some quotes at you here too. Some of your stuff that I really appreciated uh -oh. that you said. Um, let's see one of them. Uh, I got so many here. I'm just going to jump in with one. Well, so you say uh, here, uh, and I think this is pertinent to what you're describing because you're all over the place recording in different environments. And sometimes we think recording is all about some super expensive looking studio with a black leather couch in the background and, you know, 
everything looks like it was over-designed. So your quote is, you know, when I have discussions with musicians about production, they begin to confuse production with great drum sounds. And I tell them that good production is about getting the songs and the performances to a point where the drum sound does not matter. Uh, and then we get great drum sounds. Actually, this was pertinent to your your discussion on drums, but still, I think it's the concept of what's the difference between gear versus performance and the songs and and, and all that. Well, I mean, performance always wins uh, unless you do stupid stuff and record to digital with hot levels. That's just the stupidest thing you can do in the world, and that's the one thing that can you know beat great performance in in terms of ruining it. But one of the things, it's, it's always so funny, like they'll say like, oh yeah, I really like this producer. And like, well, why do you like this producer? Listen to the snare sound on that record. Like, it just kind of seems wacky to me yeah. that in my understanding of production, it's like, okay, yeah, that, that was one issue. But production really is coming in sculpting the experience, sculpting the music. You know, people really think like, uh, like oh yeah, teach me some vocal production stuff. And I'm like, okay, so I'll start talking about how you get better performances out of the vocal, you know, how you, and like, well, no, 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 but what EQ do you use in the mix? And it's like, that seems sort of like such a secondary minor kind of thing. And people think, oh, that's vocal production. Like what EQ you choose? Like, no, that's just kind of the decoration on it. So all of this stuff about production is that thing about like, let's get the song great. Let's get the song in the right tempo. Let's change things around. Let's Let's have them record all together or overdub. And it's all those kind of creative things. And the sonics of it are just sort of one small part of this. And, you know, it's even funny, too, that a lot of times somebody say, oh, yeah, that's I love that producer's snare sounds. And you're like, well, that producer's not an engineer and he didn't mix the record. And the guy that mixed the record usually replaces the snare drums with samples. So... How is that producer's, you know, and it might have even been a situation where producer submitted one mix and, you know, the label rejected it <laughs> and sent it off to some other, you know, hotshot guy to replace all the drums with samples. Yeah, I mean, that also speaks to the process of crediting on records and how people reach for the first credit that is in front of them. And that's often described as being the producer. What thoughts do you have about record accreditation and, and is any of that changing moving forward where it's easier for people to be aware of the different elements and, and what creates a record? We're at a weird time where the things are becoming more and more ambiguous. And unfortunately, we have a, a technology environment situation where it would be so easy for credits to be awesome and accessible and great for producers and engineers, but nobody who cashes checks cares about it. There's no reason in Spotify that you can't hover over a link and it pulls down who produced it, who mixed it, who was the Pro Tools intern, you know, who was the graphic design. I, I would love to see a, a day where something like Spotify integrated with the All Music Guide. And so you could listen to something on Spotify like, wow, I, I love this song. Let's hear more from this artist. Or, wow, I love the way these drums sound. Oh, and you could actually just hover over, oh, this guy mixed it. And then you could click over and that could bring you up a whole list of other things that that guy or gal has mixed. Yeah, more metadata tags that you could just sort of follow a thread through a series of records. I think that would be great yeah. for Spotify. I think it would cause a lot of people to discover things that they otherwise weren't going to go discover and they would get more listens. Yeah, and especially us nerds who would follow, you know, oh, the producer or or the mixer or things like that, that, you know, your average person might not. But even even other things like, wow, I love this song by Britney Spears. 
And then you can go over and go, oh, Brittany didn't write that, but Max Martin did. Oh, let me see Max Martin. And then go over, wow, listen, I love the way he writes songs. There's so much potential there, but you know that doesn't add a lot of zeros to anybody's paycheck, at least in the in the big things. It, you know, it could add zeros to the producers, mixers, songwriters, but... Uh, well, eventually, I think it'll come around. And I think eventually things just become more connected because people ultimately want them to be. Yeah. We live in a social world after all. Exactly. Well, so that, and then this quote you had, uh, you said, music is ultimately about communication. Regardless of the stationery we write a letter on, it's what we write and how we say it that matters. Yeah. Wow. Where did I say that one? That one's good. <laughs> but uh, that's one of the big things that, again, people sort of overlook, and especially us who are sort of drawn to some of the technology issues of recording, is we get really excited about what kind of transformer was in that mic pre. And I don't want to dismiss that because I care about that stuff too. But, you know, some people will worry about the package. And I, I hate seeing producers and engineers sort of do that, you know, whether well, look at, oh, how is this drum sound going to sound at the expense of how is this music going to connect with people or showcase different emotional content of the music. And I, I don't say any of this from an ivory tower. One of the big things I struggle with myself is, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty solid engineer. I've been doing this a long time. And a lot of times I'll sort of make records that I'll just dial in and they were just perfect. I think, wow, this is as good as I get. And then maybe even come back and look at them a year later and go, man, that's really perfect and balanced, but it doesn't really capture why this band is exciting. Maybe I should have like completely overmixed, like pushed the guitar way up and drowned out the drums because that would make it more powerful. And, you know, one of the challenges I had, especially when I was younger, was trying to balance making records that would impress my engineer friends versus making records that would connect with people who love music. And really, that's the latter is the one that matters. And yeah, sometimes that's hard to understand and wrap your head around. Well, one of the things that you talked about was mixing, you know, and how sometimes mixing in an hour which equals mixing quickly, typically, mm -hmm. could be a good thing. And have you ever noticed this, that the longer you work on a mix, the more homogenized all the sounds get, and the more you sort of push everything back till it's all just about equal? Yes. I say this as a music lover, not as a guy who actually has to really manage projects and stuff. But one of the great advantages of life before everybody had a recording studio is you had real, real deadlines. You know, I, I own a nice commercial studio now, but... The years when I was a freelancer, we'd talk to the band, we'd come up with a budget, and I'm like, okay, I get this little chunk of it to pay my rent, and now we have enough to go in and rent a studio for three days, or for 10 days, or for five or seven weeks on some of the bigger things. But when you've got like, okay, we have enough money to spend six days in the recording studio, the record has to get done. There is no, ah, why don't we come back and revisit next week, because the budget's gone. In those really sort of rushed fast things, one is I think there's an intensity to that that brings greater performances out of people. But you have to work faster. Your skills get better. But also a lot of those sort of happy accidents where you go back and like, man, that kick drum is really loud, isn't it? And then you kind of realize, wow, that's why this drives so hard. Yeah, maybe the guitars don't sound so hot, but man, does this sound cool and exciting. Or that thing where like, the guitar solo came in way too loud and you pulled it down, but you didn't have time to go print another one. And all of a sudden, just the fact that that guitar solo just screams in way louder than it should adds an excitement and power to a mix. Again, and now we fix all of that stuff. And I think 
we do end up sort of washing out a lot of what's beautiful and exciting. Go back and listen to so many of the great records from 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even part of the 90s for the indie scene. There are those weird sort of happy accidents that become part of it. And even things like, you know, the fact that the engineer sort of botched the drum sound. And wow, that reverb that he put on those toms is just ludicrous. But now it's part of the flavor of that that record. It's the spirit. It's the beauty of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was talking with uh, Bobby Osinski recently about this concept, too, where art is created within limits and boundaries. So limitations and boundaries are required to make art. You know, and when you think about it like that, you begin to realize that the more you're aware of what limitations you're putting on your creative process, the more likely you're going to be able to push up against those boundaries yeah. and get into the real creative zone. Yeah, I think it was Stravinsky who had the great quote who said, if I ever sat down to compose without a set of restrictions, I could never write a note. Something along those <laughs> yeah. lines. Well, I, this just popped into my head, the image. You're talking about guitars being loud, and there's so much for us to talk about. I want to ask you about some of the guitar players you've worked with. But imagine a guitar that had an infinite number of strings on it. I don't think it would be a popular instrument right now. <laughs> no, it would not. Well, so tell us a little bit about some of your um, favorite guitar players. Maybe you can just share with us one really thrilling moment you had recording guitar, because you've worked with some of the greats. Yeah, I've been really lucky. Um, wow, there's kind of so many. How about one that was just too loud and worked out great? <laughs> uh, oh, man, Steve Stevens is the loudest guitarist on the planet. It's one of those things, I don't even know how he does it. You know, I can plug a Les Paul into... A, a Marshall diamond out. And I'm like, okay, I play it on one level. And somehow Steve Stevens could pick up the same guitar and be twice as loud. It's just in the studio. It was just ludicrously loud beyond what I could imagine. And the funny thing too, is like, you know, his headphones, like if his headphones were sitting on the floor on the other side of the room, you know, they'd be loud listening to his headphones sitting on the floor <laughs> on the other side of the room. But this is the weird thing, which he's a freak of nature. He's got really good ears. <laughs> He's actually a, a really accomplished engineer in his own right. So one of the most baffling, unhuman things, like when we were tracking drums, I did a record with uh, him, Terry Bozio, and Tony Levin, Bozio Levin Stevens. And I did the second one called Situation Dangerous. And yeah, it was just the loudness of everything. Like the whole building was shaking from his guitars, <laughs> <laughs> which just seemed crazy and whacked but of course his tone is great and his playing and the subtlety everything good you would want and just somehow he actually has great ears too and is a really good engineer which is kind of wacky well that's cool that reminds me i'm going to let rock stars listening now know about something that is a great tool for the studio when you're recording other people and you're engineering just go on ebay and get yourself some bilsom gunshot earmuffs. I have about mm -hmm. six of those hanging by the door from my control room out into the live room. And when I walk out there, I just pop those on my head and then I can just be relaxed, go stick my ears right in front of the snare drum, no worries. Uh, so I'll put that in the show note links too, just to let you know. Yeah. And one thing also, Vic Firth makes drummer headphones, which are essentially those with earphones inside. Yeah. Those are very cool. And they're like 50 bucks and they don't sound that bad. And those are useful when you're recording because some drummers need to have a lot of loud click in their headphones to be able to stay on the tempo. And, yes. uh, and that click can bleed out of the headphones into your drum mics and using those isolation headphones keeps it out of the drum mics, which is great. Yeah, which is really good. Just to pimp a little book, there's a new book called Tone Wizards 
written by Curtis Fernadley. And if you're into guitars and guitar tone and recording and stuff, it's it's an amazing book. And not just because 23 pages of it is me. Um, but <laughs> I'm kind of the only, uh, mostly the main engineer there. But it's interviews about getting guitar tone. And there's a big interview with me, but you know, I'm the least important. Steve Vai is in there, Joe Satriani, Eric Johnson, Joe Bonamassa, Peter Frampton, Bob Bradshaw. Nice. And so if you're into like guitar recording and uh, guitar tone, it's just so deep. It's ridiculous. Like what's in there and uh, who's in it. That's cool, man. That is uh, what we're going to direct people to rather than me asking you some how to record guitar questions right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, Get an amp sounding great, put a 57 on it, and move it until it sounds right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not being sarcastic. I was going to throw in a little joke to a little quip and say, I'm still working on my tone, but I was a wizard for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's jump into the ending here. I want to get into the jam session where I give you a series of kind of quick questions. But before we do, I'd really like to give you a moment to tell the rock stars about recording boot camp, which is just such a cool thing. Nice. Well, I started recording boot camp about 13 years ago now, I think. And the whole idea was it's a, a six-day intensive and just really hardcore digging into. It's not, it's not software training or anything like that. It's about understanding dynamics and mic theory and compression and production and mixing. So it's a real six-day intensive. We do them mostly in Los Angeles, but we also do one, usually about one in Europe every year, usually in North Italy, but sometimes down in Athens, Greece. And one of the things that's really fun and what has been just keeping me up at night working is we're just about to launch the big online component of Recording Bootcamp. So, and it's actually going to be a lot more than it's not going to be just the course videotaped. That's one of the challenges I had was taking this thing that's very in-person, interactive and translating it into an online course kind of thing. But it's really deep. Like, so there's things that we might spend maybe two and a half hours on in the boot camp. we're actually going to spend like 10 hours on that aspect in some of the online courses. So we're just probably within the next month going to be starting to roll that out. And all of the info will be at recordingbootcamp.com. And also, if you come to the in-person things, which are my favorite part of doing all this, and we keep it really small, we actually keep making it smaller and smaller. There's a lot of people have jumped into this game. Uh, and I think it was really like myself and Michael Wagner were the guys who really started the whole idea of like the one week intensive thing. But uh, we keep getting smaller and smaller. Like we only let like three to four people into the course. So it's real personalized, really hands-on and kind of very different than some of the other options out there, which kind of keep getting bigger where you're kind of in a class with 15, 20 or 30 yeah. other people. Yeah. Ours is a real different thing where it's really personalized, really kind of hands-on and focused. I would describe it as a grab the knob size. You get to grab the knob, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get to grab the knob. And also, again, there's so much diversity in music that I find with a lot of times is if you're, say you're a jazz guy and you're just sitting in a class with like 20 other rock guys and it's like, okay, you know, drum sounds. And it's all about, you know, how to get it to click, 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 quantize or something. And you're like, oh, that's not my vibe. So we kind of keep the class really small. So like when we get into drum sounds, if we have a jazz guy in the class, we talk more about, oh yeah, this is how it applies to this or, oh yeah, you're doing, you know, Scandinavian black metal. Okay, cool. These are the things you need to look for, for Scandinavian black metal kind of sounds. And things like that. And that's the big advantage for keeping them small. It's it's a lot more fun and personalized. And 
I think people can get a lot more out of it if they're going to you know, make the effort to go fly to Italy or Los Angeles or hang out with me for a week. Yeah. Like I was saying earlier, I call that kind of creative tourism. So what a cool opportunity if you're into recording, you know, why go sit on a beach and twiddle your thumbs and have too many drinks on the first day and then just recover from a hangover for the rest of the week. Why, <laughs> why not go to Italy and be in a studio with Ronan, you know, hands-on, learning how to record, getting to do it. Yeah, and the studio is built into a beautiful 500-year-old villa. Awesome, man. Awesome. And the food's so much better at the boot camps in Italy. <laughs> well, so now, hey, I'm going to go ahead and say, I know you also have some awesome, awesome free stuff and giveaways going on kind of regularly. How how's, can our listeners go find out about some of those opportunities from you? Well, if you go to recordingbootcamp.com, at the moment, we're about to revamp it in the next month, but you'll see right on the front of the page, there's uh, things about the giveaways and don't know when this will run, but at the moment, we're giving away a really cool mic from Roswell Pro Audio. And uh, next up, we've got a uh, like an $800 software package from one of the cool plug-in manufacturers. Um, it's, it's from SPL. So depending on when this goes out, you might have a chance to get the SPL, every plug-in they make bundle I'm giving away. Awesome. And I've got stuff queued up for several months. So uh, yeah, come to Recording Bootcamp and sign up on the mailing list. And we do giveaways where you got to be on the mailing list to join. But of course, it's free. And when you join the mailing list, I'll send you a free 60-page ebook about recording and uh, won't spam you much. Mostly my mailing list is kind of just free recording advice with the occasional, hey, we're having a workshop or something thrown in there. That's cool, man. Thanks for doing that. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Hey, everybody. It's Lid Shaw. And I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to MixMasterBundle.com, enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. All right, Ronan, well, let's jump into the jam session if you're ready to go. Yes. All right, cool. So at the beginning, man, what was something that was really holding you back? Hmm. The funny thing is I've never really felt held back in terms of being able to do stuff and be creative. I started with a four-track cassette, I think one or two microphones, and and that was it. And I sort of made stuff. So there's actually been very few times in my life where I think I couldn't do stuff. I couldn't be creative and make music and make recordings. I think the things that kind of held me back was 
I think not just going for stuff in a bigger way. When you get older, you kind of look back on your life and, you know, when you're young, you're like, oh man, if only I could have this kind of opportunity or this kind of opportunity. And then you get older and look back on your life and go, why didn't I just pick up the phone and call somebody? Why didn't I get proactive and do that? So a lot of things that sort of held me back from doing more music or advancing professionally at some faster level, I think were a lot of me just not having the courage to sort of go knock on doors or, you know, find a cool band. You see a cool band in the bar and think, oh man, it'd be cool if someday that they would want to work with a guy like me, but not going, hey, I do recording stuff. Do you guys want to do some recording? So what held me back wasn't external forces, but I think me not having the courage to just sort of get up and go for it on stuff. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And you used one particular word a number of times in there in your examples. And it's a word that I have heard other people use. I've used it myself. And it is, it's your enemy. And it's the word if. When you hear (laughs) if in a sentence, watch out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Even if it's in your own head. Yeah, but I've been been really, really blessed in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, most of the limitations were me just, you know, that I faced were me not having the knowledge or the courage to just go for stuff that I wanted. So that's why I'm always very public that the Tragically Hip from Canada really, really, really needs to call me to produce their next record. That's great, (laughs) man. That's great. Well, so how about sharing an example of some of the best advice that you received? Best advice I ever got was from Tony Levin, and that was to show up on time. <laughs> you know, I was, uh, I, was, I was doing a record with him, and I forget which one it was, but I would brought him in, and he, he came in the night before, and, uh, you know, I'm the producer, and I'm all cool and stuff, and, and he's like, so when would you like me here tomorrow to record? I'm like, I don't know, come in around noonish, and he's like, when do you want me here tomorrow? I don't know, about, about noonish or whatever. He's like, what time do you want me here tomorrow to work? And I said, uh, 12.30? And he's like, okay, I'll be here at 1230. I'll be ready to work. And it was one of those moments that was just transformative to me because here I was, some young jackass producer thinking I'm all cool and being all casual. And one of the most prestigious musicians in the world and one of the most respected professionals in the world is like talking about being on time. And he, he explained it to me and he was, he was basically schooling me. And we had a, we knew each other and had a good relationship, but he said, I'll be here and I'll be on time. Other people can be late if they want, but a session will never get slowed down or stopped or complicated because of me. I'll be here at 1230 and I'll be ready to work. Yeah. And it was one of those things that was just so mind-blowing as me as some you know, hotshot kid thinking I'm cool producer guy and really one of the coolest musicians in the world is like, I'm going to respect you and I expect that back. Yeah. He was basically asking, when would you like me to be here so that you can produce my record? You know? Yeah. And it was like one of those things where it just like, boom, it like, it so humbled me. And ever since then, I try really hard to never be late, never be that that person. Because in reality, you never want to be that person. You never want to be the person in a project that keeps it from moving forward. You know, that's bad for the business of it. That's bad for the creativity. And not to say, you know, people get in car crashes, wives go into labor, all those kinds of things. Life happens. But the whole, uh, yeah, let's just chill out at the coffee shop a little longer. We can show up late. Ever since then, it's sort of like been unacceptable to me. And, and it kind of irks me <laughs> now when other people are like that. You know, and it's notable that Tony is a bass player too. And one thing that distinguishes the bass from other instruments is, when the downbeat happens and, you know, that 
first beat of the chorus happens, you have to be there with the root note on time or you kill it, you know? Exactly. Even though the funny, it's a very funny comment is actually, it's a very Tony Levin thing to not play on the downbeat. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. um, but and if people don't know Tony Levin, he's Peter Gabriel's bass player, the guy with the shaved head and the mustache, but he was John Lennon's bass player, Paul Simon's bass player, King Crimson bass player, Seal's bass player. You know, he was Buddy Rich's bass player on the Roar of 74. So almost whatever you're into, Tony's done cool records you love. Like on metal stuff, he's done things with the guys with Dream Theater and things like that. He's just, and Paul Simon. And <laughs> Well, I also heard that he played with this guy named Ronan Chris Murphy and his band Lives of the Saints. Yeah, well, he didn't do it in the Lives of the Saints thing. That's okay. just me and a guy named Bill Forth. But yeah, he's he's actually the bass player on, um, I think as soon as I get the launch of the online component of Recording Bootcamp up and running, I'm going to have time to get back onto my record. And really, I just got to finish some vocals and solos for the most part and mix the darn thing. But uh, Well done. You didn't say if or if only anywhere in there. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so now, can you, Ronan, share with um, our listeners, the rock stars, a recording tip hack or secret sauce? Oh, um, I'll throw in one just because I never pass up a uh, public platform to do this. When you're recording to 24-bit or greater digital, do not record with hot levels. It's just the dumbest, stupidest thing you can do. And anybody who disagrees with me about that is wrong, and I'm right. And that's the only issue in <laughs> art and recording where I will ever speak in these terms. But there are so many downsides, and it's just so completely heartbreaking how many records I see screwed up because somebody's trying to capture maximum resolution of their audio signal and crapping out their converters or clipping. So just don't ever, 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 ever do that. So now let me help clarify that a little bit. You're not only talking about, I mean, like a lot of people are familiar that if it's too hot, you get the red light and you're clipping and you see that digitally, but you're talking about more than that, right? Are you talking about long before you even get there, there's an analog component going on, not to get too deep with it? Yes. And you kind of need to get a little deep to understand, but yes, when I'm, when I'm recording my peaks, the loudest thing, like in a whole song is I want them to be about minus 10 max. Wow. Because People don't realize that, you know, especially if you have kind of more affordable converters, you know, if you have high-end mastering converters that you paid thousands of dollars for, they'll tolerate more. Um, but especially the home recordists who might have an all-in-one interface or something, when you start pushing past like minus 10, you're actually starting to crap out the analog components of your converters, you know, so you're not using your converters to their strength. And I could easily spend two more hours on this, so I won't. But it's one of those things where even if your peaks are up at minus 10, you're still recording more resolution, more dynamic range than anything you will ever, ever record, period. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> you know, really, it's just like one of those things like, you know, you've got a football stadium and you, you want to fill it with, we want 100 people to come to this giant NFL stadium. And so you put everybody in the top row so that you can really fill the stadium. It's like, it just makes no sense. And the bummer about this, you know, is that it's really, as long as you press the record button, clipping and crapping out your converters and stuff, it's the one thing you can do to lose a performance of a lifetime. And that to me is just the most unacceptable sin in recording because some knucklehead on the internet told you that you should record your levels really high to capture maximum resolution. And then you have a singer who's just in the zone and get inspired and they start belting. And uh, 
all of a sudden, like that br- beautiful, glorious bridge that they just delivered gets all crapped out and distorted and lost. You've lost a performance of a lifetime, which is like the ultimate sin of a recording a guy or gal. It's just nice. it's heartbreaking. Would you say that most people's experience with the gear that they're using to record with the preamp, for example, the settings, typically if you stay somewhere in the mid-range of quietest to loudest knob turn, that you're going to be somewhere in the ballpark? Is that a, just a stupid question to ask? I feel like some people are going to want to know about that. It's not a stupid question to ask, but but just look at your meters. <laughs> you know, when you're, you've got whatever DAW you're recording in has meters. And when you're recording, have your peaks go about two-thirds the way up. Okay, great. And because, again, depending on how hard you go with your mic preamp, you might be recording a quiet finger-style acoustic guitar or a heavy metal band snare drum. And they're going to have very different spots of what is optimum for that. So really just, yeah, look at that and, you know, go about two-thirds the way up. I promise you, and don't get me wrong, even if you want to make the most extreme, over-the-top, loudest CD to ever be released commercially, if you record and start with conservative levels, that loudest CD to ever get released commercially will sound better. You should probably stop me because I could go on this for... <laughs> yeah, you know, you're going to have to start saying things like, geez, I don't know, Lidge, so we can get through the rest of these questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, how about sharing a favorite hardware tool, some something physical that you really like to have with you in the studio? And, and it doesn't have to be an 1176. I don't own an 1176, and it, this is really weird, and I might get kicked out of the cool guy club. I'm actually not a huge fan of them. For that style of compression, I actually like the Pete's Place BAC 500 better. I'm like sorry, we're breaking up Skype. Is <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry, man. My dumb jokes. I cut you right off. But go it, go at ahead least, At least in the classics, I love LA-2As. LA-2As are just amazing and fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, for me, like when I think of like hardware, uh, get the job done, like of the nuts and bolts stuff, I'm kind of a nut about the A-Design Pacifica mic pre. I just use them like on 90% of the stuff I record, you know, whether I'm doing metal bands or folk singer songwriter records. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I use that a lot. And also Desert Island mics, like if I've got that, a Shure KSM32 and a Shure SM57, there's almost nothing I can't take care of. You know, so those kind of nuts and bolts. But in terms of hardware, like the one thing that's kind of, tough to work without is I just love distressors because I'm a big fan of using lots of compression and distressors allow me to sort of push things farther than a lot of other hardware software counterpoints will let me do. That's true. I got to get a distressor. I haven't worked with one in a little while. Yeah. The dude from UBK just did a new plugin, which I haven't tested yet that inspired by, but, but yeah, the distressor, it's it can just really push things so much farther than my plugins or most of my other hardware. Mm-hmm. And not to say it's always the better choice because, you know, there's plug-in compressors, which I think are really fantastic as well. But the distressor just, it's just like, yeah, daddy's home. So when you really want to like smash drum rooms and I actually like very aggressively compressed vocals, even on mellower records, it's just such a great tool for doing that. So have you discovered triple button mode in the distressor? 
Uh, I don't think. So. <laughs> well, we used them a lot on vocals, and we accidentally stumbled on what we called triple button, kind of like the 1176 has the multiple button. And it's totally wrong because it's the link button and the, the low cut and the mid-range, I think, all at once. And without having another distressor linked in, and that had this big open sound that was really great. And then we would just crank that way down. Nice. So there you go. Try that if you want, at your own risk. <laughs> I got two, so if I blow up one, I'll still have the other. Right on. So uh, how about a favorite software tool? Uh, Isotope Bar X. I know I've, I've got good friends who have software companies, and I don't know anybody at Isotope Bar X, so I should promote my friends. But I can explain that Isotope Bar X, I got a free copy they hooked me up for free because Ronan's recording show, and I just went and bought it. Um, <laughs> and what I love about it is it removes a lot of barriers and limitations to my creativity. Hmm. Uh, and if you don't know, Isotope RX is basically this sound restoration denoiser from Isotope. So like a situation where like, man, I really want to play this, you know, guitar player wants to play this Strat and we've got this old funky fuzz pedal from the 70s and this weird flanger thing from the 80s. And, you know, it's just like so buzzy. And you're like, ah, I can't use that. But man, the tone is so cool. It allows us to say, well, let's do the cool tone and we can go in and remove tremendous amount of buzz in a really kind of cool, natural way. Um, also like you and I have spoken in the past, we both really enjoy like remote recording and being mm -hmm. outside and field recording. So it's that kind of thing where, man, that's a beautiful vocal that somebody just sung out in that cornfield or something like that, except for when that big truck went by or even worse, that Harley went by, you can go in and, you know, start pulling that out to make things usable. So I love it so much because yeah, it doesn't have its, some groovy, cool sound I like. I like it because it lets me tweak things and use creative options that might otherwise be unusable. Well, I totally agree. And I actually just upgraded to the newest RX. And um, I use it, for example, I'll be using it on this podcast. So I use the vocal denoiser or the voice yep. denoiser. And that thing does a wonderful job. But I had my first experience with it was I had done a record and the vocals had, everything had gone off to be mixed. And the guy emailed me back and he's like, there's click track on the vocal. And as you know, Ronan, that's like the <laughs> worst thing you could possibly hear from somebody. And I was mortified, you know, but it was a fast record. It was one of those moving so quickly, you know, it's things like that can happen. Yep. And so uh, never again, of course, but, <laughs> and I, I said, well, I, I can't promise that I can do it, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I did, took RX and I did it and I could not believe it. I was able to take click out directly within the vocal phrases. Not in between, but like during the vocal. I just yep. couldn't believe it. It was incredible. Yeah, that's the thing. Like with that and like my example of the noisy Strat, yeah, it doesn't just gate out the sound in between. It removes that buzz from inside the musical performance. Yeah, it's to me, it's one of the things that I really consider to be just revolutionary. I mean, there's noise reduction's been around for a while, but it... It was either always really, really crappy or really, really expensive. Um, Ronan, do you have any tutorial videos for yourself using RX that you'd like to share with everybody? Oh, I'll have to look. I mean, and this sounds kind of funny, but I mean, I've done uh, I've done like 100 tutorials since, since 2008, 2009 or something. So I actually don't remember. <laughs> uh, it, it actually might be as part of some, but I'm not sure I've done a straight up one. I'd have to check. 
Rona's Recording Show is about to get a really nice revamp. Got a guy actually working on it today. But yeah, go to Ronan's Recording Show and just type in Isotope and uh, there's a really good chance there's something in there. Awesome. Well, maybe it'll make it into the uh, the boot camp too later on. So yep. keep your eyes peeled for that. All right. So next up, how about a, a resource for the business side? Something that really helps, you know, could help anybody out. Ooh, um, one of the things I can say about resource from the business side is to use social media smartly. You know, I actually have somebody who, you know, in my company who does all the bookkeeping and stuff. So they'd be better to tell you about <laughs> those kind of things. But that's good advice too. Sometimes the advice is find a bookkeeper. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you're not good at it or, or hate it, I mean, uh, I actually know how to do bookkeeping. I just, uh, <laughs> it's not one of my favorites, <laughs> but yeah, look, looking at, you know, if you can build a team of people to help you, that's always better. And that's something I always struggle with too. But one thing just in terms of growing the business is use social media smartly in terms of how you want to be presented, but also the kind of people you want to get attracted to you. Keeping in mind, like, uh, you know, social media is a big marketing platform, even though, you know, we have lots of friends on Facebook and stuff. I think I know 10% of my friends on Facebook. Um, but really think when you're trying to promote your business, really think about the kind of things that would attract the people you want. I mean, it could even be something wacky, like, you know, say for instance, you know, if you want to be in a particular niche of like, oh, this kind of music or even, you know, political things and stuff can get a little wacky on, you know, Facebook and things like that. <laughs> but yeah, find ways to attract the customers you want. And it might be the thing like you're really into like new age meditative and you produce ambient and those are people you want to collaborate with. Don't just put out things like saying, hey, cheap recording time. Put out things that are like, oh yeah, yoga tutorials or, or things like that or even sharing that so you become a resource for that. You know, if you're really into like extreme metal, kind of get to be somebody that people know is, oh, yeah, that's a guy who loves extreme metal. And, oh, he also does recording. So if you're an extreme metal band, uh, wow, let's do that. Because in the end, it's today more than ever, when, when an artist or record company or something like that reaches out to hire somebody for recording services, uh, they're looking for a person they trust. That is the single most important thing people should understand if they want to do this, you know, recording stuff professionally, that the clients are out there looking for people that they trust. And most of the people who are ever going to cut you a check to record a vocal don't care whether you have a Lundahl or a Cinemag Transformer in your mic pre. And I, I don't want to dismiss the coolness of choosing one of those versus the other. Uh, and that'll allow you to do work that's more representative of your taste and style. But the people who will cut you checks are doing it because they trust you. Yeah. And they'll cut bigger checks not because you have XY gear. They'll cut you bigger checks because they trust you more. Well, I think an analogy would be for anybody to imagine the times that they have chosen somebody to collaborate with. Maybe you chose somebody who you wanted to be in your band, for example. And you might realize that you didn't choose them because they were the single best guitar player that exists or that you know of, but that there's somebody that you really like playing music with. Yeah. Or in the case of Black Sabbath, Ozzy got the gig because he owned a PA. <laughs> <laughs> the band needs like, <laughs> He started that classic urban myth, right? The, the, the expression. 
yeah. It's great. Well, that's actually in uh, in Ozzy's autobiography. So. Yeah, no, I just mean the uh, the concept of like, you know, I got the PA and so I'll be the yeah, same. Or his dad owns a van. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> He'll do. All right. So now this next one, yeah, you've already begun to answer, but I'm going to spin it back to the stuff that you're working on traveling around this year. So this question is, if you move to a new location and you start it all over and you could only take a simple setup to record with, what would you take? How would you find people to record? And also, how would you make ends meet while you were building up your music, your recording career there? And I thought for the simple setup, maybe you could tell us what you've been taking as you travel. Yeah, I mean, the, the last part of that is the uh, the tricky one. But um, what we take around for most of this stuff is we take uh, myself and like, and sometimes uh, Diego Lopez, an engineer that works with me a lot. We travel, we've got our MacBook Pros and an Apogee Duet 2 and uh, a Shure KSM32, a Shure SM7B and a Shure SM57 and also a, um, a Triton Fethead to boost uh, low level dynamics for when we record quiet stuff. Oh, cool. But that's pr- pretty much what we go out with. And, a, you know, a couple headphones and a splitter. And just that little kind of kamikaze setup covers almost every bass we can run into. I mean, some of the things we're recording, uh, you know, musicians and beautiful antique, you know, theaters and opera houses. Actually, the last thing I recorded, literally the last thing I recorded was Robert Rodriguez's, the filmmaker, his little sister playing castanets in a parking garage in Austin, Texas. <laughs> That's literally the last thing I've committed to tape, <laughs> which I did uh, last week and I've been tied up with some mastering stuff lately. But that's such a great way to go. And I'm a huge fan of the duet too. Just what they've been able to do in that tiny little package USB powered in terms of conversion quality, mic pre quality, uh, and size is just ridiculous. And really, that that's all we travel with uh, when we go out on these remote things. And if we've got something like, oh yeah, we need to record a big drum set or something, it would be insane to try and bring all of that around when there's local studios, local rental houses and things mm-hmm. like that that we could source it out. Well, three mics never worked for a drum sound before, did they? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, if only Zeppelin ever made a record we could enjoy listening to. All right, so uh, inquiring minds want to know, which mic did you choose for the castanets? Oh, um, oddly enough, the SM7B. Nice. And the reason for that, if I was in a more controlled environment, I probably would have used the KSM32 because that's just for percussion and drum overheads I'm not sure there's ever been a better mic. And that's probably what I would have chosen in a controlled situation. But it was actually kind of raining off and on and windy. And this was what kind of one of those sides are open. So there's big gusts of wind coming. And uh, the SM7 had a, we had the windsock for it. <laughs> so uh, we, we chose that uh, to cut down on the wind. Come on, man. Isotope RX, dude. <laughs> I, <you know. laughs> if you don't have to spend hours on post-production, then you might as well not. Exactly. And, and really, like, the wind thing is kind of a particular thing because that's kind of like crapping out the diaphragm in a way. So you actually do, wind can cause you to actually lose content. So Wind is a loser. Oh, sorry. That was a little pun there. So, all right. How, how about this, Ronan? This is our kind of bizarro metaphysical question here, but what is awesome. the, what's the single most important thing a listener can do to become a rock star of the recording studio? Listen. <laughs> um, yeah. I should be all Zen and just leave you with the word listen. Listen. And just long, empty silence. Um, 
Well, there's two things. One, I mean, all you have to do to be a rock star is get on your show. That's pretty much as a small boy. I was just, someday I'll get the call from Lidge. <laughs> but uh, there's two things. I'll, I'll give you one about developing your craft and one about developing your business. In terms of developing your craft, really listen. And uh, not only to listen to the music and all of those kind of things, but go in and study records you love academically. I'm always kind of amazed how many people who do recording or aspire to do recording who don't really listen to records academically. They're like, oh yeah, that record's killer, great vibe. But they don't really have an understanding. They've never taken the chance to listen and go, how bright or how dark are the reverbs on that? Where does the hi-hat sit in relationship to the percussion? Is the kick drum really forward and high mid-forward or is it really back and soft and mostly low-end forward? And pulling apart things. So the best thing you can do is like sit down and just really academically study. And the best way to do this, I think, for a student is to go like component by component by component. Like even like pull up stuff you've been working on and pull up a record that's like your dream, what your record would sound like. And really listen like, hi-hat, how bright is that? How much low-end does it have or not have? Where is it panned? Okay. And how does it relate to the rest of the kick drum? Is it unnaturally forward or is it back and blended in? One of the things I do for a lot of people all, all over the world is I do uh, mix consulting and mix coaching. So, you know, people will send me tracks and, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about them, evaluate them. And it's amazing how many times, you know, they've told me, yeah, I want my record to sound like XY artists. And they're so off the mark. And it's because they never actually really academically compared what they're doing against their favorite Metallica record or their favorite Britney Spears record or whatever they're comparing against. So that would be the big thing to go in and just pull apart things at an intense academic level. And the bummer about this is you might realize some records that you loved, oh, those records sound so killer. And then you realize, I never realized how terrible that <laughs> snare actually sounded. And that is the mark of a great production. When you think that record is amazing and killer and you never notice the parts of it actually sounded bad. Yeah, totally. It's like going back and watching some of your old favorite movies and you start noticing all the edits. Yeah, the really bad CGI and things like that. And on the big thing, you know, in terms of becoming a rock star thing is like the business or, you know, moving forward is doing this is this is really at the end of the day, this is a people business and people, you know, think, oh yeah, if I save up or take on more credit card debt to buy X, Y gear, then things will just start happening for me. And it doesn't really work that way. My apologies to all my friends who sell and build gear and software, but it's the kind of thing. So find ways to get out and really connect with people, you know, find ways to go in and, uh, you know, make friends with people, like meet the bands that play at your local clubs and online communities are a start too, but also try any way you can to get deeper than that because online communities are sort of quasi communities. And even people we know who are friends from Facebook or whatever, or gear slush or things like that, you have one dinner with them and your relationship just jumps to a whole different level in terms of trust and knowing whether or not you like these people. Because at the end of the day, we work with people we trust and enjoy being with. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, so uh, Ronan, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. You're just a fount of information and great advice. It's really cool. Awesome. Thank you very much. So Ronan, tell uh, our listeners how they can find you and, and learn more about you if they want to follow you on social media or get in touch with you or any of those things. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, recordingbootcamp.com is a really good source for that. Um, also, the new revamped Ronin's Recording Show is going to have a lot more stuff going on with that, ronansrecordingshow.com. And uh, my studio, which also I'm revamping all the websites, venetowest.com, V-E-N-E-T-O-W-E-S-T.com. And then on Twitter, I'm just Ronan C. Murphy, at Ronan C. Murphy. And Facebook, just go on there and search for Recording Bootcamp, and you'll find me quite easily. Nice. Well, um, you're going to be seeing some tweets from me. I have, I'm staring at two pages of your tweetable quotes from your aphorisms <laughs> blog post. Great stuff. Awesome. <laughs> so cool. Thanks so much, Ron. I really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you. I look forward to meeting you in person over, over that lunch or dinner sometime. Perfect. All right. Cheers, thank you man. so much. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RSRockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lyd Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.